Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, we give away a box of books every week to one of our Patreon supporters, and we have more bonus episodes and bits and pieces yeah as a physicist you know there's no right answers but there are less wrong ones and so that's that's fine. fewer uh no i prefer less <laughs> well done Joseph, what? so you'll have a go at me about using they because you're like oh it's not correct but you'll use less and fewer I'm talking about writing a book no 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 want. in conversation i will yeah oh. um, anyway hello welcome to josie and Robin's book shambles. Hello. Uh, we are in Perth. This is uh, we've we've got only two more book shambles that we're going to be recording uh, in the southern hemisphere for the time being, and we are joined by uh, a songwriter uh, and a writer of books as well, and uh, also uh, and well one of the most important members of the band Cold Chisel, um, and that is Don Walker. Hello. Hi. How are you? We're good, Josie and Robin, and thank you for having me on. We're, the first thing I want to ask you is uh, about the fact that because I work a lot with someone who was a keyboardist uh, and then became a physicist, uh, and you have gone the other way round, uh, which seems like the more natural way. I think very few people go into showbiz hoping it's going to be uh, a way of then becoming a theoretical physicist. Uh, so, but you, you started your, your career um, as a physicist. So how, what was the, first of all, what drew you to physics? Um, I, uh, well, I, I'm drawn to mathematics, uh, or I, w- I was drawn to mathematics as a teenager. I was, I was reasonably good at it in my little, you know, state school and in my little country town. And, um, and so, and I had one or two friends who were also very good at it, and we used to, we used to compete at it as a, as sort of a chess game, and um, and then going into university, I guess um, I optimistically chose the uh, the the applied maths and physics end of things, thinking that that there might be you know opportunity for employment there, which um, which is pretty optimistic at this end of the world at that time. But you, this is something interesting because mathematics and and musicianship seem to go together quite well. It might just be that I happen to know a reasonable number of people who their their methodical thinking when it comes to trying to get to the end of various different maths problems seems to also work well for them creating music as well. Do you see the two of them uh, kind of going hand in hand? Well. It, uh... I quickly realised at at university that um, that most people in the mathematics and the physics departments uh, played an instrument. Uh, they're usually in in the classical world, and um, uh, my immediate professor that I worked with uh, uh, back in those days was a guy called uh, Neville Fletcher, who went on to uh, head up the CSIRO, the the premier. Uh, research organisation in Australia and uh, he was a woodwind player and he was the on-call woodwind player for backup woodwind player for the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in the late 60s and and besides being quite an eminent physicist 
um, and on an international scale, he, his hobby was building harpsichords. Um, so, so, and and I, there were very few people that I knew in those faculties that didn't that weren't drawn to music in some way. But there are considerable dangers in approaching music from a pure mathematical viewpoint, and and you can very quickly wind up uh, doing dance music. And you consider That's that to be one of the great, great, greatest risks. That's right. Cold Chisel became just a huge band. Was there a point where you were going, right, physics and maths, I do seem to be spending more time on the road now. There is a point where you have to lose the security of the career that you have and take the risk of, you know... (laughs) Yes, there there was. Um, I, in in my mind and my heart, I was being drawn a lot more into rock and roll, even though when even when I was an undergraduate, and finding it more and more difficult to concentrate on what I should have been concentrating on, which was, you know, my coursework, and uh, and event, and you can see that in a, in a graph of my results. Um, but um, uh, I, I did go on to uh, to have a job for a couple of years, and and it was in those years that cultures were formed, and uh, and so at a certain point there was a, a certain month where I informed everybody out at weapons that I worked with out at weapons research um, that that I'm I'm dropping this job, I'm doing something else, I'm resigned. Where you, where you hand in your resignation. And the head of and the head of you know flight research calls you in and says, well, well, where are you going? What are you doing this for? Well, you know, I'm going on the road with a rock and roll band, and he he was an old style English scientist post World War Two, and it was it was like I just walked in, taken my clothes off, and painted myself blue. He was just utterly bewildered by he couldn't encompass that concept at all. I hope you didn't go in and paint yourself blue because that would have been very prescient for the hugely popular Broadway actor, the Blue, Blue Man, Man Group. Yeah, so Blue Man Group. So, uh, Did he give you any advice at the time? No. He didn't say, I'll tell you towns to avoid. <laughs> These are the ones that make sure when you get to the venue, there's chicken wire in front of the stage. These things will be necessary. The um, that is Because that is almost the opposite of, of Brian Cox because his experience was basically, Brian, great news, our single's charted. We're filming Top of the Pops on Thursday. And he'd be going, oh, I've got to go to Switzerland to send bundles of particles with speeds near that of light around a collider. <laughs> oh, Brian, you've got to make up your mind. Um, that It sounds like Brian, when he made the switch, he was, all, was already successful in his alternative. And for me, that was not the case. I was really leaping off a cliff. <laughs> I think he also, his, the first band he was in, Dare, which were a kind of rock band, mm. was very much his kind of music. And then when he went into a slightly more dancey band, I, I think at that point already he was thinking, oh, actually, I think I might be drawn more towards... Because he was very clever, because even when you see clips of him on telly, uh, he's always slightly in the background, as if he thinks, in a few years' time, I might be communicating science... Uh, on the BBC, so it's best that I can only be seen in the corner of the picture, not right in the front of the picture, in my really terrible tartan outfit that I chose to wear on this particular TV pop show. Did Don't you look at YouTube? You'll be able to recognise him. Really I terrible s- tartan outfit. It, Left hand corner. Did, did you um, did you keep up an interest in uh, maths and in physics, even though you were out touring, or is it something that's come back to you later, or do you just feel like 
that's from a different part of your life and you're not? No, I, I completely walked away from it and and I retained no curiosity for it at all. Even huh. even in those, um, you know, inevitably in, in uh, music, you, sooner or later you find yourself faced with electronics and um, in studios and stuff like that. I still to this day can't walk into a studio and and wire up a microphone or or do or know what any of the modules on a recording desk do. Um, <coughs> my interest was revived in these things when I start when when my children started to reach school age, and I was having to guide them through uh, mathematics syllabuses and and physics syllabuses, and then uh, and I found that the the lower level maths and physics started to come back as basically doing kids' homework. Huh. Well, I, I wanted to talk about when you wrote Shots, which was about five years ago now that it came out, was it? 2009, yes. So um, revisiting, putting together, Cold Chisel 1973, roughly, is that bit? That's right, yeah. Yeah. So when you start putting together Life on the Road and the... How difficult was it to, you know, how many times did you ring people up and go, do you know what, I've got a vague memory that when we're in Wollongong, this kind of thing, you know, how did you manage to piece it together? Because there are some musicians who you read some of them and you find out certain people kept incredible diaries. And it, like the Ringo Starr thing was he sent <laughs> postcards to many different, and Ringo Starr is, of course, your favourite Beatle, isn't he, Jackson? Well, sort of. Have you I like to argue, that well, it was very much a bit of fun that got out of hand. Uh, saying that Ringo Starr was the best Beatle. I think he was the best-looking Beatle. I've had to have a very vicious argument with someone about that. But um, I just... He voted Brexit. That's not peace and love, is it? It's, you know, Oh, really, did he? Yeah, for all of his... And, and then I used to go, well, he's the only Beatle that never beat his wife up, so, you know, who else are you going to... What? He's the only Beatle that didn't have, like, right, loads yeah. of accusations against him. And then... Um, somebody emailed me. No, there was. Yeah, he he was also involved in Don Vice. Well, I, I wish like, I'd never brought Ringo Starr up. Now this has got a lot of bleak. I was doing books. a fun Ringo Starr octopus's garden. No, kind of and, and also I always hated the songs that Ringo sings. They're always a downer on an album. It's like, oh great, a children's song with Ringo. Great. Well, I wish you told me this beforehand. If you told me about how fast you'd move I've from the opinions. idolatry towards Ringo to this new well, phase. My favourites now are George and Paul. <laughs> Well, there's anyway. So Ringo Starr Sorry. sent postcards. Let's just cut that. We'll cut you, the rest of that out. Did you just say when you were on the road? When you when you were away? No, no, I, I never did any of that stuff, and and I didn't take photos. There were other guys in the band that did all that. So and you were like, oh, they're doing that. I don't have to worry about it. No, I'm, I'm just. I've just never been one to you know carry a camera around, and um, and it is true that you when you see a couple of other guys doing that. And doing the doing the tourist things that you can relax a little bit more, and you think, well, somebody's documenting it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I'm thankful that they did, uh, because you know, not so much for my book. I didn't use any of this stuff for my book. But um, a couple of years ago, we had a we had a um, uh, an original member passed away, and uh, so there were other guys in the band who could provide all of us with. Uh, in those days, a CD of photos down the years, of which I have none, but wow. I, but but they could they could provide me and everybody else with like a complete documentary of our past mate. So that's good. When you were going through those that you have the early years, were there points where 
your opinion of your own past changed when you're actually sitting there writing and you're collating it again? Well, Shots is, Shots is more um, a compilation of, of, of short um, recollections on their own of, a, of you know, a particular time and place that's not necessarily connected to the one that precedes it in the book or the one that follows it. And they're often uh, no longer than half a page that, that gives you like a, a snapshot of a particular thing. So these are, these are very clear and intense memories. What happened then after that, the next day, I have no idea. And the next thing that you might read in the book might have happened six months later. It's the next clear shot or memory. Mm. So um, a lot of the problems that, that you have if, you, if you're trying to build a chronological day-by-day book to lead people, you know, hour by hour through your life, uh, don't crop up with the kind of book that I put together. And I, th- and I think also that, that the result is, um, you know, I can't think of anything more boring than leading people through a day-by-day of your early life. Mm. Have you had people come because when you when you're in a in a band with with that level of of acclaim and that level of passion uh, that people have for you, uh, I've, I've spoken to people before who kind of they, they write a book and then someone comes up to them and apparently knows their life better than they are meant to know their life. You know those those kind of fans yes. who yeah. who have who apparently have a greater knowledge of what you have done than what you have actually done. Well, yes, there are people like that and. And the sad part is that they do have a greater knowledge <laughs> of what I did. So, I, I have, um, I, I have, um, you know, cast iron recollections of things that I'm told couldn't possibly have happened. Um, I remember seeing, uh, I remember seeing ACDC at, at uh, the Larks Pier Hotel, which is a waterfront hotel in Adelaide. You know, in their very early years or like within a month or two of, of Bon Scott joining and 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 I can uh, vividly remember supporting them there but I'm told by somebody who knows all the dates of where the two bands were and everything that that never happened huh. and that actually what happened was that you know because that was a regular pub and because we we had mutual we, we knew them and that we just happened to be there that night watching them is but that... in, in my mind, we supported them. How disconcerting, because I think it can be a very disconcerting... Yeah, I mean, we've all had moments where we've argued with someone and it's very intense because you both have, you know, the, different versions yeah. of, of a reality. Mm. How do... Because there's things like flashbulb memories, which flashbulb memories are those very intense memories, uh, quite often kind of traumatic memory, which are, uh, they become... They apparently, talking to various neuroscientists, including Dean Burnett, who we've had on this, oh, yeah. that those, those are often quite firmly imprinted even though some of the minor elements of what happened there may be changeable as you return to them the the main body of the memory is and then of course but most of our memories of day-to-day uh existence or even doing gigs uh are a collage uh, yes yeah and and did, did you find that when you were returning and, and putting together so many different memories, did you ever have a battle with yourself as well, just going, hang on a minute, let, let's work out, because I, I used to think that was the memory, but now I'm not entirely sure it is. Yes, well, uh, uh, neuroscientists uh, tell us, um, uh, and, and I do, I do dip, dip my mind into you know pop science and newspapers, but, uh, tell us that every time you access a memory in your mind, that the process of accessing it changes the memory. Mm. 
Um, definitely, uh, um, uh, and and I think I think this is the, the this is the broad thrust of the word palimpsest, which uh, if you, one of the greatest bi- autobiographies I've read is a, is a, a Gore Vidal biography called Palimpsest. And, it, and it's about this whole idea that um, not only not only are our memories um, do, do our memories are our memories to a certain extent an illusion, but the process of accessing them and and in particular the process of writing down our memories affects those memories a lot. I knew this uh, from songs long before I approached the idea of writing a book that if you take a little piece of your life and put it in a song, to in some ways it kind of wraps that little piece of life up in a package and externalises it. Yeah. So you have to be careful with all this sort of stuff if, if to preserve yourself. Yeah, did you feel that way when you were writing, that maybe there was stuff you didn't want to give away? Most definitely. Yeah. And and long before that, you you feel that way with songs, to be very careful that you don't, you know, put too much of your life into the song, or you don't have a so- you don't have a life left. Yeah. But the other thing uh, that I found with shots, and I knew this was going to happen, is that it's very intense putting stuff down on the page. But once you've got it down on the page, that becomes that replaces the early memories that it imperfectly reflects. Yeah, it's funny. I've definitely had that experience with writing for on stage. You say the thing over and over again. You can't remember with any clarity what's true and what's false about mm. what you've written and what's been embellished. And yeah, you sort of set something off into the world. There's a, there's a great quote from um, George Louis Borges where he says, in the act of writing something that you've experienced, you, you transform yourself. You cease being an actor and you become a witness. Mm. And uh, that's he writes a lot of profound things, but that one stopped me. Well, it's true as well. And, it, and then, yeah, you have to contend with all the different ways that you've tried to present yourself and the version of yourself that you're trying to put out that isn't going to be authentic to who you are or complicated enough to fully... Yes, the, the version of yourself that you write down becomes the authoritative version for yourself. And in some ways, it expunges the real version that you had in your mind beforehand. Yeah. Well, certainly with stand-up, because what you're hoping to do on stage is project a very specific version of yourself where you have the most control in any of the social situations. That's why people would often say, you know, some comedians are, are not very good socially. And that's partly because you have two hours a night where you are in charge of the situation or predominantly in charge of the situation. And then if you just go into a party, you're not in charge of the situation. No. So you can see people go, hang on, why am I going to take that kind of risk? I've just projected an image for two hours and then everything is now, there are a lot more variables. But that's a very, the memory thing I think is very interesting about, because um, not only I suppose you become a witness, but you're also becoming the, um, you're the central character. You're witnessing yourself in some yes. ways. Uh, and you are now where you might have been in the film version you're probably going to be cut out of that particular scene or you will just be the one near the tree at the back yep. so know, or, the or in the tartan costume in the back with the keyboards or whatever. But in your version, in your mind, you're right, you're the centre of the lens. Yep. And there's also the danger that if you're, if you're not only the actor but the witness, you can very quickly become a wanker. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's returned to the great John Hegley, who I, I don't, who's a, a British poet and uh, and performer, and uh, he used to have a, a poem where I think it was called the stand up comedian uh, sits down and goes uh, the stand up comedian uh, stands up and gets to the microphone. This microphone smells of sick, he says. Get on with it, shouts one man. I will. Just give me a moment. Then the man shouts, "Get off!" Who only? This is a, a pricey, by the way. Who says? And he has this whole little dialogue with himself about what's going on stage, and he says, and then the comedian thought of a line so witty so incisive that all further heckling was made redundant unfortunately he thought of it on the bus home and that's kind of it isn't it it's our bus home thoughts that we then go do you know what I'm going to take my bus Put home thought straight that's into them that should be the end of the story but I won't be on the bus I'll just be standing there face to face nose to nose now so, wait, sorry wait, no no well you mentioned um, Borges which is always a, he's such a tricky one to pronounce cause yeah like, I get worried about that as well sometimes Borges, I deliberately Borges. don't even read him because I realise that I can never reference him for fear that I'll say Borges or something like that and it'll all be a screw up yeah and I remember at university first being introduced and thinking this this is very difficult for me. I'm not cultured. And, um, so, uh, is that is that somebody that you really love to read? Like, who who are your favourite people that you, um, yeah, that you love to read? Uh, he he's a favourite, um, but but he's he's a favourite in early life because, um, uh, well, my my original literature, you know, I spent a, I spent a great deal of my early life reading um, reading comics and science fiction, so. I'm I'm not a a literary person, but you can go you can go very easily from comics to Borges because everything yeah. is uh, everything is short stories. His language is uh, is is like crystalline, uh, clear and simple. And but the but the stories are the stories curl your mind, and um, and they're short, and so you you walk around for the rest of the day in a bit of a daze. You know, trying to un- untangle this—not untangle, but trying to straighten out. How did he switch me around and push my head into that um, uh, kind of days? So early in life, uh, I, I read a lot of his stuff because—and there's not a lot to read—just um, because um, it was um, uh, it was easy to read. I would, and we didn't have many gigs, and I didn't have much else to do. Uh, I only happened across a book of his uh, two weeks ago in a bookshop in Singapore that I hadn't read, huh. so I grabbed it, and and that's where that quote came from. That's that's how I can sit on your book show and appear to be literary. Yeah, whatever's most recent is always most relevant in the conversation. Like, oh mm. well, actually, yeah. Um, so, what's the book that you've most recently read of his? It's called Brody's something. It was. Uh, it's a book of short stories that he wrote quite late in life, when apparently he hadn't written for a couple of decades. So he he was around seventy when he wrote it. So I can't tell you Brody's what, because uh, I'm. I'm getting quite elderly myself. <laughs> that is that is a really exciting moment, though. I think when you there are certain authors where you just go, oh, I better not read all of their stuff, because I don't want to live in a world where I go, there's nothing more of this person to read. Mm. And then that excitement where you find out that there was actually a book that you didn't even know existed. Yes. 
and that's that's a real who else are the authors where i mean do you generally find that again from from traveling and being on the road and touring that short stories are a useful thing you can't get immersed in a in a you know 800 page novel but to be go in between sound checks in between and now the move between hotel and back there's time for 10 pages 20 pages uh i i i can't say that i'm i'm a big short story reader um i should be for all the reasons you mentioned and um but no that you know if if you mentioned the great short story writers i probably haven't read them so it's it's mostly novels and it and you know i've got i i my reading always gets hijacked i have the books that i intend to read and that are bought and are sitting there and um and then uh the um and, and then there's the books that somebody gives me or that I spot in a bookshop and, and I buy that and it, and it hijacks me sideways for a while. What's been your book of the great... Because we've all got that thing where at the beginning of the year and you go, this will be the year that I read James Joyce's Ulysses. <laughs> it really will. And then, as you say, one book arrives and then you notice a thing in a shop and then you go, next year I'll read it. There's, there's, you know, sometimes there are classics, aren't there? That in, the, in your mind you go... The truth of it is, I don't think I ever will read this, but I will always have the intention, that noble intention <laughs> right. of definitely reading it. I have, I have a book of the, um, I have a book of the, the Gnostic Gospels uh, that were discovered in Egypt somewhere in the last 25 years. And somebody's, somebody's put all of these in a book, which I've read half of, and... Um, uh, and I got stuck on one particular one, which which knocked me out. And and I've read that twice, and I'm halfway through reading it again, sort of, and notating it. And it's my intention to read all of those, but it's it's quite a thick book of Gnostic Gospels, and uh, I will get through it. But that's going to take me years. Um, what was it that knocked you sideways with the one that you you keep returning to? Well, it's 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 a um, uh, I. I have never been educated, you know, my education is in maths, so I don't have a humanities education. Um, I'm intensely interested in, in um, uh, th- you know, uh, theology of the early Christian era, when the, the whole of, of every, from, from Greece through the Middle East seems to have been an, an alphabet soup of... Um, of churning, you know, ideologies and religions, some of which survive today, and and some of which only survive today in echoes of other religions, and uh, you know, for some reason, I find I find all that, um, you know, really fascinating. Uh, it has no, it has absolutely no um, application in writing rock and roll songs, uh, but uh, uh, so this book of. Gnostic Gospels is a reflection of that. I think it dates somewhere around. They, they, they think these might have been buried in a jar from a monastery on the Nile during the during the Diocletian, um, you know, suppression of Christianity. When Diocletian sent out everybody and and said, "Okay, we're going to slaughter all these people," and uh, and during that time there was a lot of um, a lot of. Christian and not so Christian literature uh, being buried somewhere. So it's a snapshot of 
what you would supposedly of what you would find in, in a in a Coptic monastery of that era. And some of the Gospels are Christian. Some of the ones, including the ones that fascinate me, are not Christian. They are um, th- there's all sorts of other ideas uh, feeding in, uh, in particular um, ideas in Greek philosophy, which I've, because I've never studied philosophy, I'm I'm kind of following in an amateur way and trying to educate myself in. So I think. What's going on in this particular Gnostic gospel is um, is a, a feeding in of uh, esoteric uh, Greek theology into uh, into Jewish ideas, and that's because I know that I think David Bowie was very interested in Gnostic gospels as well. Was he? Yeah, he he had a the fascinating uh, a list of his top hundred books, which included uh, the, there was a a book all about the Gnostic Gospels, and then, then of course quite a few of the in terms of myth and I mean that that's when you said this doesn't feed into songwriting. I think that when you look at the list of David Bowie's hundred books, you you think, oh yeah, I can see where you know when you're a kid, you don't realise that Hunky Dory is filled with Nietzschean philosophy. Right, and then you get old. You go, "Wow! I just thought that was a song, and now I realise there was kind of a manifesto in there that he was playing around with." Do you well, ever? Every, everything feeds in, doesn't it? Everything feeds into the well of what you're taking yeah. on board creatively. Yeah, and David Bowie was always, always pretty. There's a real Teutonic 19th century thing going on there. So, have you ever found are there are there certain authors or certain artists where? you've seen or you've read their work and afterwards you think, wow, this really had, uh, I didn't even notice the effect it had on it, uh, on me until I went back and looked at the work that I did at that time. I would have to think, yeah, well, you know, for, for rock and roll, I would have to say certain, um, it's not, I, I don't know if you could, uh, certainly I don't think you can look at my lyrics and say, well, that's, that reflects that I was reading this or that. I think it's more on a general outlook. Um, so I come, I come from a small country town, in a, in a, um, you know, in in rural Australia. So if I if I come across people that have an outlook of of you know, optimistic, mid twentieth century Midwestern America outlook. Which is everybody from Ray Bradbury to William Burroughs, um, where there's that uh, through to Scientology, uh, there's that sort of boundlessly optimistic Midwestern science fiction. Saw a, saw a flying saucer last night, um, but now I'm going to write some beat poetry. That kind of outlook that that feeds in not only from those writers but but that has a that has a natural resonance from resonance from where i come from and feeds into the into the laissez faire uh world which is which is rock and roll bands touring around with no visible means of support ray bradbury's an interest cuz I, I think of people like ray bradbury and then the tv and film writer rod serling as well you know, the Twilight Zone seems to... I've noticed there's been a few books have come out recently. Again, they have this kind of uh, a, a mixture of uh, optimism and then also a very philosophical look at what it is to be a human being slightly confused by the world they're in. And I think that those post-World War II writers who've seen some 
it's quite often terrible things. And it then right. gave them actually an optimism in the, in, in the, like that we want to rewrite the world as a better thing. Yes, and, and, and the, somewhere tied in there is that boundless mid-century American, um, we can do anything. You can get up in the morning and do anything. You are free. Before, um, uh, before a lot of late-century thought came along, that trammeled and closed that in a little bit, where people started to say, "Well, no, if if you if you get up in the morning and you do exactly what you want, you're going to damage things," uh, and and that became the trend that I've noticed from mid twentieth century through the now uh, that the gradual closing in of that freedom. Well, there's that. Um, I read this article. This is that one article my friend recommended me about um, the different stages of capitalism, focusing on provoking one emotion in general in people in order to keep itself going. And so, to begin with, uh, at the start of the 20th century, it's misery, and then in the mid 20th century, it's boredom, and then in the late 20th century and the early 21st century, it's anxiety. And so, the you can see how that theory. Uh, can be kind of shown through culture because in the 50s and 60s you've got people who are like I just want to rebel I just want to do things I just want to get out there I'm so bored this can't be all there is you know shut up mum telling me what I'm supposed to be doing and how the world is that's not how the world is I'm bored I want to do this and then more recently it's like oh god everything's falling apart no we can't do anything you know and, and um yeah, I, I certainly think that there's there's been some kind of cultural shift and that's definitely been reflected creatively. Even in the terms of how people wrote sci-fi, like people writing sci-fi in the middle of the last century, it was, even when it wasn't utopian in what it was saying, it was kind of utopian in the, the sort of brushstrokes of it. Uh, Whereas now absolutely. it's a lot more apocalyptic. You know, people are always like, well, uh, Earth is dead, so we had to try and start a colony mm. on Mars. Whereas before it would be like, in the Mars civilization, the giant mining corporation, you know, we sort of... We yeah. were terraforming everything. Yeah. I'll tell you what, we'll think on that, and we'll get back, because I love talking about science fiction anyway. Yeah, me too. But thinking about growing up in... Because various people that I've spoken to who, who grew up in country towns uh, in the kind of 60s and 70s in Australia, they will talk about waiting for books, you know, that sometimes it was hard to get what you what you wanted you know growing up if you you know growing up near london there's access to so many things you just take it for granted sure. you can get hold of all these things did you find yourself kind of that impatience of like waiting for the new you know science fiction comic to come out and or did you have reasonable access to uh, a variety of books no it's it's um it's in a place where i grew up uh i don't think there was a bookshop there was a news agent that sold books. Um, I I had access to books, but I didn't take much advantage of it. In in that my mother in in midlife decided to do a university degree and to do a humanities degree, uh, so she had books around the house uh, that wouldn't be normal, wouldn't be seen normally in a in in the average farmhouse. Um, what kind of know, things are you talking about? Oh, well, she was studying everything from, you know, poetry, Yeats, uh, the great novelists, uh, you know, the, the, the standard, the standard uh, English literature of the time. In an era where I think when she did, when she did start working at university and, and she was 
and she and some friends were were talking about setting up Australian literature studies. There were still there were still people in um, in English faculties at that time who were telling her, "Well, is there any?" Um, which which quickly changed. But uh, back back to your question, uh, mainly what we used to wait for in country towns were were records, because there was very good access. There were very good record shops, so you could get within uh, you, within ten months of you reading about something in fanzines, you could get that record. I can remember being at school and and somebody had access by post to a fanzine. There was, of course, there's no internet then. Yeah. Uh, somebody had was getting monthly fanzines from Los Angeles, so we were getting. We were getting pictures, these grainy pictures, because the fanzines were very, very low production sure. quality, grainy pictures of the doors on stage in a little club. And we had no idea what they sounded like. But you just think, these guys seem really cool, and I love what's being written about Here's them. Here's this guy in leather pants, yeah. and he looks like some kind of dark god. Yeah. We, all had, we all had very clear ideas in our mind of what this guy must sound like. Do you but remember when, when you actually heard the music and how yeah, you felt about it? it? It sounded nothing like the picture. And what did you think? <laughs> but did, were you, like, pleased or disappointed? Like, how, how was the experience? I'm very pleased. It quickly got used to the way it sounded oh, and loved like... it. But, but the, initial, the initial hearing was a shock. It didn't, yeah. sound, it didn't sound like the picture I had in my mind at all. Well, Sorry. we're going to see you, though when people hear this, it will be in the past, we're going to see you uh, tomorrow evening. Yes, Looking forward to that. Had a little rehearsal last night with my mates, my Perth mates, and um, and I I think uh, I'm quietly confident. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm optimistic, but this that might have be been great. just where I grew up. Because when people hear this back, they go, "It's really weird." Because Don was optimistic. Do you remember? <laughs> and then that thing happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. thank, thank you so, so much. much for joining us. And there was uh, which uh, did we find out? It's Doctor Brodie's. Is it? It's not Doctor Brodie's notes. What's it? Uh, couldn't find it. You didn't find it? No, I've failed. Oh, how wrong, though, that you've come up with a book that may well only exist in that one particular bookshop and it only existed for you as well. That seems quite right. That's for... completely Borges. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm now sorry, I, I must run to the bottom, we're... but don't leave. Where are you um, going, Joseph? We're stopping the podcast because you need to go to the toilet. Oh, no, we stopped because we're six minutes over. Oh, well, thank you very Please much for joining minutes, us, Let's go to the toilet Sorry, it's really exciting to get to talk to you. I'm sorry to be... That's right, we'll do the fade out and then fade out as you walk away. I had a coffee and then my brain woke up like I was looking. I was like halfway through, I was like, oh, my brain is here. Brilliant. Thank you very much, as usual, to all of our Patreon supporters. And this week, our special thanks go to Daniel Hogg, Leonie Connellan, Kate Cornish, Kate Lunn-Pigula, Alex Preston, Mark Atherton, Ian Foster, Philip Coburn and Gold. Box of Books goes to Ian Chilton. Congratulations to you, Ian. If you drop us an email to contact at cosmicshambles.com, we will get your prize out to you just as soon as we all get back from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And if you happen to be up at the Edinburgh Fringe, you can catch Robin in his two shows, which is running until the 14th, Pragmatic Insanity and Rorschach Test. And then Josie is doing three late-night shows from the 14th at Summerhall. And you can also see lots of our previous Book Shambles guests who are 
on the fringe with lots of shows. People like Barry Crimmins and Sarah Pascoe, John Luke Roberts, uh, Joe Neary, Tom Ballard, Ursula Carlson, all sorts of people. So make sure you check them out. And we should also quickly mention that our guest this week, Don Walker, his new album with the trio Tex Don and Charlie, that being Charlie Owen and Tex Perkins, who you probably know from The Cruel Sea and Beasts of Bourbon. So their new album, You Don't Know Lonely, has just been released. And if you are listening to this in Australia, they are on tour either now or very soon, or they've just been on tour, depending on when you're listening to this. And if you would like to go in the running to win the box of books in future episodes, as well as get extended episodes and bonus episodes, then you can become a patron of, or patron. I don't know what it is, actually, and I never know when we tweet, because the site is Patreon, but obviously you become a patron on Patreon, but I don't know if you are a a Patreon rather than a patron because you're on the Patreon site. Who knows? Someone will uh, tweet us and tell us, no doubt. But if you would like to support the show so we can keep making it and get all that uh, lovely extra stuff, go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles, click on the patreon link there and you can go and pledge as little as one dollar an episode to get all the bonus goodies and and help pay for studio costs and everything else that goes into making this show hope you enjoyed this episode we will be back next week thanks for listening this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network josie robbins book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions